From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Raj Nation, and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast-growing startups work with me because they want to become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, making his way to the microphone from the greater Chicagoland area and currently residing in the greater Chicagoland area. He is the founder and CEO of Rafty Advisors and the host of the Leadership Podcast. Please welcome Jim Vassilopoulos. That's awesome, Raj. Thank you. <laughs> you are welcome. He is Jimmy V, Jim Vasilopoulos, as I mentioned, CEO of Rafty Advisors. They are an advisory service firm helping early stage companies get off on the right foot, helping growth stage companies push through plateaus, and helping mature companies with strategic shifts and complex challenges. They do that through expertise in leadership development, high performance sales training, and executive coaching. And Jim is also the co-host of the Leadership Podcast, which has grown tremendously over the last four years. He's had the privilege of interviewing the likes of Simon Sinek, um, major four-star generals from the United States Army, amongst so many others. And it's really, it's, it's a fantastic show. Jim and I met about five years ago now, four and a half years ago, um, kind of on the basis of podcasting initially. And then over the last, I mean, very quickly, you became a mentor of mine, which I'm very grateful for. And you've been a mentor for me these last four or five years. And I'm really excited now to have you on our show today. And the topic is an interesting one. We have not covered it at all before. And it's almost like it runs counterintuitive to maybe what a lot of people hear. The topic today, Jim, is maximizing revenue with minimum inputs. Can you let our listeners know why this is on your mind and why it's important to you? Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. And, um, you know, why is maximizing revenue with minimizing inputs important? And I think if you just think about that little phrase, the most important word in that phrase is with. Because, you know, in, in a world we live in, you know, we love maximizing things. So let's, like, let's maximize something or we love minimizing something, you know. Um, but doing uh, them together is really the balancing act that's hard to do. And it's really optimizing a situation. And I think very few people like to go through the dirty work of optimizing situations. They prefer the binary, you know, hey, let's maximize this or let's minimize this down to zero. And it's the dirty work and where the compromise exists and where the real balancing act is, is in the optimization. And, you know, in my field now as a, you know, coach and a business advisor, um, 
this is the closest thing I've got to a magic trick that, can, that I can have people that I can show people where it's like, I can show you how to maximize revenue and minimize the amount of effort and work you put in. And people go like, eh, I'm not sure I buy into it. And then, you know, a couple <laughs> months later, they're like, you know, like, oh my gosh, you know, everything you said has happened. This is unbelievable. And it, you know, that's what makes it fun. So that's why it's, you know, I'm passionate about it because it's something figured out a number of years ago and it's, you know, I just want to share it. I'm excited to talk a whole lot more about that. Before we do, let's rewind the clock, the calendar, the tape, whatever you want to call it. Let's take a rewind and learn more about you and your background personally. Uh, one thing I actually, you know, in the years we've known each other, one thing I don't know about you is what was your family structure like growing up and how do you feel that influenced, that influenced the way you think? Well, you know, I, I come from a, a Greek background, you know, very big, strong family, um, very close, you know, and when we talk about close, I mean, it's almost comedic, like the movies. I mean, it's like, you know, um, I can't tell you how many Spiros there are in our family. Everyone's got like, you know, they're, they're, you know, Spiro M, Spiro Pete, Spiro J. Um, and so you've got all these people that all live together close to one another, very tight family. Um, and, uh, you know, we've continued that actually into my generation where, you know, in the same subdivision here, we, I've got like cousins and sisters and stuff. It's just crazy. And, and that is important because if you look at the basis of so much of what I do, it's based on relationships and good, strong, loving relationships. And, you know, that can extend beyond the family and into the business world as well. And, and I think, you know, people like to think, you know, let's separate those two things. It's like, no, we're humans. Let's enjoy deep and fulfilling relationships. And, and, you know, growing up in an immigrant kind of mentality, I mean, my parents, you know, uh, my father was born in Greece and many of my relatives were born there and came here. Um, being an entrepreneur is like, just like, <laughs> I wouldn't say it was an expectation, but it was like, is like, you know, why do you want to work for someone else when you could work for yourself? So yeah, I knew that was probably in my future. Interesting. No, I, you know, I'm actually, I'm chuckling because I thought you were going to take that the other way. A lot, I feel like a lot of, families and i think even a good number of immigrant families are always like go where you have security and you know you know why why risk something like that when you know you can work for this company and have a well paying job and i think there are a lot of families who have like kind of an old school mentality where in a way self employment is almost a dirty word uh, because it comes with so much risk associated to it now do you feel that it was because, you know, you have parents who packed up and literally left a country to move to another country that entrepreneurship was born and bred, or did they also career-wise um, go that path themselves? Well, you know, what's interesting is when my father came over here, he was, uh, you know, he got his college degree. Um, he, you know, was, you know, a CPA. So, I mean, he could be an accountant and, and um, he had trouble getting a job because, you know, he had an accent, his name was weird. Um, the, you know, and he was doing great work, but he could never get promoted or get the real job that he was due. And so, um, that was really tough for him. And I think he wanted that security and that safety. I mean, I, there's no doubt about that sentiment from an immigrant standpoint, but, um, you know, the reality was, is, uh, opportunities existed, you know, to try and do your own thing and make your own way and not have to deal with some of that, um, you know, a discrimination to some degree. And so, you know, he just made his own way. I'm sure they wanted the same for me. I mean, they wanted me to work for the big company. I got a job with out of school forever. But the reality was, is like, once you kind of witness and see what it's like to, to do your own thing, 
it's hard to like, that's Pandora's box is already open. You've seen what it looks like. You, you don't yeah. want to go, you know, you, you know what it's like to be out of the cage, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And once you, once you get a taste, uh, it's, it's tough, it's tough to go back. I often say, and I, you know, I, I'll tell anyone this, I'm not opposed to going back and working for a company if the opportunity is right. And it's come across my desk a couple of times. Um, but I've always said, part of the opportunity being right is I go out on my own terms, not I was like pushed out because I felt like I couldn't hack it or something like that. Because if that's, if that's the reason you go do something else, and I know everyone, you know, if maybe sometimes finances dictate, you have to make a move like that. But I know for me personally, if I were to leave entrepreneurship to work for, let's say a startup who wanted to hire me, and I did it because I felt like, oh, I just can't make it work in this world. I know the second I'm working for them, second something interesting happens over here, I'm just going to get that bug. I'm going to get that itch right away. And I'm going to want to spend all my time doing that instead of working for the company that I said I would go and work for. Yeah. I mean, the pressure to get pushed out exists even if you own your own company. I mean, ask you know Steve Jobs. Look at that story. Huh. So it, it, it's always there. There's always pressure. You know, nothing's easy. But um, I think uh, not, and not everyone's cut out to be an entrepreneur, you know, to be honest with you. But the reality is, is um, I knew from a young age that that was something that really interested me. And uh, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to kind of fulfill that. Well, one of the interesting things in your journey, and, you know, you've worked at several places, you've started multiple companies, you're an advisor and a coach and an investor at this point. Um, the really interesting thing is you've, you've built up this lofty sales background, yet your degree is from University of Illinois in mechanical engineering. And U of I is well known across the country for its engineering program. So you got into a really difficult program at a really difficult school. How does sales enter your life with an engineering background? Yeah, well, I, the funny thing there, and I won't tell this story because it's like way too long, but like, <laughs> yeah, I got into a really difficult school. The trick wasn't getting in. The trick was staying in. Hmm. <laughs> that, that was absolutely the most humbling experience of my life was trying to get through that program. And um, it, it taught me a lot. It taught me how to think and solve big problems and break down big problems. And I think that's really where, if you look at where maybe I've done some different things in the sales world, it's only because I knew how to break down complex problems into simpler parts and kind of dissect it and rethink it a little bit. And I think that's where I was able to bring some engineering thinking into kind of the, the way I sold. But the way I sold was, you know, I had an entrepreneurial opportunity. Um, you know, I was working for a big firm, a, you know, well-known national firm or international firm. At the time, it was called Allen Bradley. It then became Rockwell. And when we were bought by Rockwell, they had a lot of defense contracting stuff. And so they exposed us, some of the engineers, and uh, to, you know, a way we could communicate with the labs out in California that were doing some cool defense work. And we, the way we communicated was with this crazy, goofy thing called DARPAnet, which was, as many people might know, the precursor yeah. to the internet. And yeah. when we saw that, we we're like, oh, this is kind of cool. And this is like well before the internet. This is like, you know, 92 or something mm -hmm. like that. And no one knew what the internet was at the time. And we were like, hey, this is kind of cool. We could do our phone book on, you know, these HTML pages and save the printing costs. And that was like kind of like a simple little project. And we did that. <laughs> and it was like, cool. And so we started geeking out, getting into this stuff. And pretty soon, you know, a few years later, it was like, hey, people want these things called websites. 
we know how to make those. Um, hey, you know, let's, and that was, it clicked with me and we started doing some small websites for companies and pretty soon we were doing it for big companies and pretty soon we were doing stuff that was like really on the cutting edge at the time of technology. I mean, we were, we updated a website for someone at Land's End from the top of Mount Everest, you know, using some technology because they had mm-hmm. someone climbing up there wearing some Land's End equipment. And um, we were um, doing e-commerce projects like well before anyone else. And we just got we got lucky. The timing was right, but we were opportunistic and we were investing and we were, you know, we were in our own time teaching ourselves skills and how to learn these programming languages. And I remember um, having conversations via email with, you know, Brendan Ike, who, you know, many people won't know, but he's the guy who was the, the founder of JavaScript. I mean, he was the guy who wrote wow. and created JavaScript back before it was called JavaScript. It was called LiveScript. And so, um, you know, trying to do fancier things with websites in the very early days. And that was just, you know, this business opportunity that presented itself because I was an engineer. But you get in there and now all of a sudden, you know, people want websites. I got to go sell them. The, the fortunate thing that happened to me was that no one knew how to buy them yet. So for me to figure out how to get better at sales, and, and I'll admit, I probably had some sales chops to begin with. I, you know, I was, I, I, that's natural inborn skills, but to learn the, the business aspect of selling, um, it was easier for me because I was selling something that people didn't know how to buy yet and they were buying for the first time. So I was able to make a lot of mistakes that no one realized I was making. And over time, I, I just got better and I refined my approach and I learned things and I did a lot of things wrong. I think one of the reasons why I can help people now is because I made a lot of mistakes, but that's right. how I got into sales. Well, and I think, you know, to come back to that, where it's starting in engineering, I think one of the most interesting points about that, and it's what I've noticed with other engineers who became salespeople, is I think the leg up that you have in terms of mindset and how your brain works is like this idea of systems thinking Mm -hmm. and understanding this whole idea of like if-then relationships with everything and knowing, and really what's an engineer's job, as you said, right? It's to simplify complex information. It's to simplify complex machines, if you will. And that's, I think what a lot, what the most successful salespeople are, are the ones who are able to think in systems. They understand everything needs a process. They know you can't just like fly by the seat of your pants and they look to how do I help simplify something for the potential customer? Yeah, I think there's one aspect of like the training you get uh, as an engineer that I think is really valuable, which is most of the time when you like go off the rails and get unhinged and like, you know, get a problem wrong or get some analysis wrong, it has very little to do with your skill in doing the analysis. It's usually what you started with. You like made an assumption that was incorrect or you just thought that like, well, you know, it must be this. And you have these set of assumptions that kind of cloud your thinking and, and derail like the direction you can go. And um, just questioning assumptions and pressure testing what you think the environment really is before you even get started is is really the key. And I think, you know, when you look at sales so many times, like you don't realize how many assumptions you take into the process and how many things like, well, you know, they, they must not have liked the proposal I sent to them. It's like, that's a big assumption. You know, maybe they haven't even read it yet. Maybe they haven't don't have an opinion because they're dealing with some family issue at home you know there's there's so many things that could be the reason why they haven't gotten back to you yet and it might not have to do with your price 
but um, those questioning those assumptions and making sure you're, you're you've got some truth behind you know what you're thinking um, is probably the best training that you can take out of let's say that discipline of engineering to apply to sales. Yeah, yeah, and to echo what you're saying there, it's it's understanding like the source or the root cause. And I, I'm just even thinking back to like, mm-hmm. you know, math class where more so like pre-calc and calculus, where if your end number is wrong, it's not just that you like change the two right above that to like get it to be the number you want it to. It's that there are four, you know, there's like four things that went wrong before that. Absolutely. that got to the wrong answer. It's not just, oh, let me make let me make this a four. So then it's six minus four equals two. And now I have the right answer. Yeah. And, and just like anything in life and, you know, it, it, problems get bigger when you, you know, get further away from really where they started. And the sooner you can identify, let's say those root causes or where things, where you got off track, the easier it is to get back on track and the less effort you have to spend. And that really gets back to that, you know, initial starting point, which was, you know, how do you kind of find that optimal situation and, and just, you know, not straying too far away from, you know, that original truth is, you know, super valuable. Well, I think this provides a good uh, on-ramp for our primary topic today, which is maximizing revenue with minimum inputs. You've, you've licked your chops uh, in sales for just about 30 years now. Um, and oh, <laughs> Sorry to age you there, but you, yeah, you have wow. you have experience. Um, and so one of the things I think is really interesting, you know, when we talked a couple of weeks ago, I, I don't want to misquote you here, but I think you may have said it as point black as like, yeah, you know what? Like, I'm a lazy guy. Uh, I don't like to put in a ton of work. And so I think what's interesting in entrepreneurship and startup land, we often hear the buzzword of like hustle. If you're not hustling, then you're doing something wrong. Hustle hard, et cetera, et cetera. Kind of feel like you've got a different philosophy than just hustle hard. So, what would you say, kind of overall, is your philosophy towards work? Well, I mean, I'm a hard worker. I mean, I work a lot. I mean, it, it, you know, so it's not like working hard or hustling isn't important. But I think too many times we we put such an emphasis on being like crazy busy and like, oh, I'm hustling and like that's like where it's at. It's like, no, it's really not where it's at. I mean, you know. We wanted to, you know, live to work or work to live. I mean, what do you really want to do? And the reality is, is when you look at that problem, I mean, a lot of people have it backwards, but hustling is, is, a, is a means to an end. And if it, the problem with hustling is a business owner and is an entrepreneur is it doesn't scale. I mean, you know, if you just think about it, hustling doesn't scale. And so if you want, if you're going to make that the backbone of how your success, um, how you're going to achieve success, I mean, it's not a viable model for success. You know, hustling is important because, you know, sometimes you have to be responsive to clients and you want to really have a, a quick feedback loop. And that's fantastic because the faster you get feedback, the faster you learn, the faster things, you know, move. And, and you know, a lot of times agility and velocity is an important part of being an entrepreneur, but it's not a business model that scales. And hustling is really use that as a, as a way to create time and space to learn. Um, if you, you know, use the hustle as a way to say, Hey, I need to buy some time and space to learn and to figure something out. Great. Hustling can work to your advantage. But if you're like, we're just going to hustle all the time and we're going to grow our business. And you know, it's like, like do the math. I mean, just extrapolate that out. It's not going to work. It's not going to scale. Um, and, uh, I can't tell you how many people, 
you know, I run into that are entrepreneurs and you're just like, it's like, they just haven't figured that out. But once you have a, like a little dialogue and hopefully someone's listening to this and they're going to say like, oh my gosh, the light bulb just went off in my head. Fantastic. We helped someone, but it's a terrible business model to build your business around. Um, it's a necessary part of being an entrepreneur, but being an entrepreneur is really as much about learning and learning quickly and learning fast. And um, if you can get yourself in a position where you can be a little bit lazier, where you can say, hey, I've got something that's working pretty well. I don't need to tend to it that much. Now you got something that scales and you've bought yourself more time and space to think about what the next iteration of your product is, what the next iteration of your service is, building those next generation relationships that are going to help you scale and grow your business. Um, because what's the big complaint about entrepreneurs? They're always working in their business instead of on their business. How do you create that time and space? You're not going to do it if hustling is a crucial element of your business model. It's just never going to happen. You're never going to work on your business. I'll tell you a way I relate to that personally is when I first started Startup Hype Man, um, one of my, probably my biggest client acquisition lever was like being at networking events, going to pitch competitions and like essentially scouting companies there. Mm -hmm. And I did that pretty heavily for the first year. And then I don't know if it was, it was a conscious decision. I just don't remember the exact like moment it happened. But I remember saying to myself at some point in that process, like, I don't want to, I'm just, I'm just tired all the time. If I keep thinking I can like go like Tuesday, Thursday night to this event and that event. And so I made a conscious decision to pull back from going to events. And, you know, I still go to things here and there, but it's not like my like lever. It's like, I'm literally going, if I want to network, maybe I'll meet someone, but it's not like a strategy because I was like, this does not like, this is not scalable. This is not viable. Even as a solo business, it's not scalable to think I can just keep going to events all the time. Cause you know what? It's not, it's not, if, if maybe it's scalable to run as a one person business, it's not scalable to have a lifestyle like that. And I was like, you know what? I'd really rather be spending my time right now, like at a yoga class or at the gym, not, not drinking another beer, talking to so-and-so. And I'm really glad that that was the sort of like revelation that I had personally, because it forced me to look at, okay, what are like real business development levers that I can pull? How can I create more of a lead gen system? And it's always being refined, but in a way I'm like, oh man, with everything that happened in 2020, thank God I wasn't still relying on networking events to get customers because I would have been dead in the water when everything got canceled. Yeah. I, and I think what's really interesting about that is, um, and that could be kind of the extrapolation you make. And, and there's a lot of truth to that. If that was the way you were relying on business uh, generation, um, yeah, you're kind of screwed in, in a way. Um, but there's like a, a different way to kind of look at the, the networking events and all that stuff. If you're going there and you're expecting like a turnaround of, let's say, leads and stuff like that to come from that, you're in trouble. Okay. Because mm -hmm. um, networking events, it's a grind. It doesn't scale. Okay. You can't do that. However, though, if you have a longer term horizon because you've got maybe a more sophisticated approach and just saying, I go to networking events to meet interesting people mm. and interesting people beget other interesting people. And those relationships, you know, allow you to do things that you couldn't do um, and you don't need them right away. OK, you're just planting seeds. The idea behind networking is I'm just out there planting a ton of seeds. 
events mm. and you go to these events, you don't know if they're going to be like the kind that sprout up quick, you know, through the ground and like immediately give you green shoots or this, the kind that like you plant that seed and it doesn't germinate or come through the ground for three or four years. Sometimes those are the best relationships because those relationships, when they do come through the ground, it's a, it's an Oak tree, you know, that thing is going to be, you know, a rich harvest. But the reality is, is, um, if you have a timeline associated with your networking and when you expect to return, expect to be disappointed, expect to have a kind of fragile business model. But if you're doing it and you're investing and you're saying, listen, I have no real anticipation of actually when these things pay off, but I know if I do enough of it, they eventually keep paying off that networking investment. And it's an investment. It's not an activity. It's an investment can carry you through a 2020 where you can't talk to people. Because you've got these rich relationships that you've built up that you can tap into that have such deep roots, you know, they can get through, let's say, a drought year, like a 2020, yeah. where there's a big drought, but you've got so many deep roots that it's like the drought doesn't even really affect me because I'm tapping into water that, you know, has been down there for years. And right. so I think networking is a, it's a long game. It's not a short game. You treat it as a short game, you know, get ready for that to just disappoint you. But if you treat it as the long game, it can be really rich and rewarding. So, um, you know, and, and I probably don't do as much networking as I used to, but the reality is, is um, that is part of the strategy to like being lazier, <laughs> you know, <laughs> is, is play the long game and get out of your own way. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I definitely planted some seeds that germinated later, but I really was going in with like a strategy of this is a client acquisition strategy, which really it's client acquisition crapshoot. It's not a strategy. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, kind of on, on this theme um, of, of playing the long game, when you are running a company you have investors breathing down your neck to hit quarterly and annual revenue goals. You have, you know, people that you need to provide jobs to at your company. What's the mental balance necessary here? And, and when you say like, play the long game, how maybe, how are you qualifying or quantifying that versus what is the short game and, and why is the short game so attractive? Well, I mean, you know, so... That's a really complex question because, you know, you sit there, you say, you can't just say, oh, I'm only playing the long game. You know, if you're only playing the long game, you better have, you know, a, a really well-financed um, strategy. I mean, you better have, let's say, you know, private equity partners or investment partners that give you like millions where you can just play the long game and set yourself up. You know, very few people have those opportunities. So, you know, you've got to be playing small ball as well. You've got to be playing the short game and you've got to be handling things. And, one of the analogies I always use, you know, with, you know, um, like the business survival basics is, you know, you need a couple things you need. Um, you know, if, if we were like going out with bear grills into the woods, you'd say like, you can live three minutes without air. You can live three days without water and you can live three weeks without, let's say food. Well, in the business world, cash flow is your air. Okay. If you don't have cash flow, you die. You need to have cash. And so you need to play that game. If you don't play that game, everything in the long game falls apart. Um, water is really sales um, because it's the kind of thing we get so busy delivering on something we forget to sell. And then we're like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm already dehydrated. I'm thirsty and I need to go back and sell more. And by the time you're dehydrated, it's too late. By the time you realize your sales aren't there, 
it's, you know, you're already in trouble. Um, and then operations is this, you know, this, you know, three course meal that we obsess on, but we never spend enough time with. So you need to play the short game. You need to do that unless you're super well financed where you've got an infinite supply of oxygen and, and water and food. And so in that regard, um, you know, good selling tactics are important, but you need to play on different time horizons. And that's where it gets into this with, you know, people say, well, do I play the short game or the long game? You play them both. The fool is playing one or the other. Um, the, the, you know, more experienced business person is playing both say I'm planting seeds for the long game, but I'm also playing the short game because I know I need to have this oxygen and this water to keep my business going. And so you need to come up with strategies that are effective for each one of those scenarios and not try and can't find like the ideal strategy that works in every scenario because that's a unicorn you're never going to find. Let's talk through some of those strategies then, right? So we maximize revenue through minimizing inputs or minimizing effort. Um, what's maybe the first step a company can take or a, a CEO can take to cut back on the amount of inputs, or I guess maybe what is the swath of inputs that exists and, and, and where do you start trimming? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm always really keen on evaluating, you know, right up front with people's like their cost of sales um, and really looking at the cost of sales and saying, you know, there are some businesses where their cost of sales is so inordinately high, it's not scalable. And so, you know, what is going to be something that's going to allow you to have a reasonable cost of sales and um, to try and really take a hard look at that. And so um, a lot of times with founder-led companies, I mean, the amount of effort that a founder puts into a sale, they don't quantify because, you know, they're either not paying for themselves or, you know, they don't look at that and say, okay, you know, that's great when you're starting a company, but the reality is, is are you ever going to have a salesperson that you're paying a salary to that can invest that much time in closing a deal? So your job as a founder in the beginning is to say, let's close deals any way we can, but my job is to figure out a more efficient way to lower my cost of sales um, and eliminate steps or, you know, um, really tweak the process and the messaging so that I'm hitting on the points that resonate, not just all the points. And I think one of the things that, you know, people do is, you know, they have their pitch and they say, these are the seven reasons why you should buy my product. Um, your goal is not to get through all seven reasons of why someone should buy your product or service. It's to find the one that resonates with the person you're speaking to and only talk about that one. And, you know, and, and that's really a discipline um, that is easy conceptually to absorb, difficult to practice. Speaking of pitch, all this season on Startup Hype Man, the podcast, we are featuring the elevator pitches that we've created for different Startup Hype Man clients to help promote their companies uh, using the proprietary framework for developing an elevator pitch here at Startup Hype Man, which is KPASA, which represents problem, approach, solution, action. Today, we're going to feature Swish House, which has just become probably my favorite uh, company, perhaps period. And in, in Swish House's case, here, look, here's the deal. You maybe you went to a spin class, but you couldn't figure out the resistance level on the bike. So then you tried one of those hit classes, but the kettlebell swings hurt your back. You went to CrossFit, but it was way too aggressive. And I mean, who likes to flip tires anyways? And Pilates made you feel out of place. And the guy at the gym just grunts with every rep. Why put up with options that are hard to get up for, hard to find, feel like hard work and hard to feel like you fit in just to stay in shape? Why not instead come to Swish House and burn a thousand calories without even knowing it? Swish House is the basketball fitness community for people who love the game and want to actually look forward to hitting the gym. 
At Swish House, feel like a kid again and train like your favorite NBA player with the perfect combo of classic team shooting contests, an array of individual drills, hoops-themed hit stations, and you get a high five at the end when you hit the, buzzer, when you hit the buzzer beater. We all know that there's no better shape than basketball shape. So whether you played on your driveway, you played in college, or you just like to shoot around, make Swish House your new home. Ditch the treadmill for good and start up today with just a $10 intro offer for your first class. Learn more at swishhouse.com. Today, we are talking with Jim Vasilopoulos of Rafty Advisors, as well as the Leadership Podcast. And we are talking about how to maximize revenue by minimizing your inputs. Now, Jim, you started to talk about before that, uh, aside there before that break, about the importance of like getting your pitch down right and not necessarily focusing on like the seven features and things like that. Um, Where do you feel, I guess, is the... Where does the emphasis come in on really identifying your process? And and I guess a better way for me to ask that is being honest with yourself to, to maybe to provide a little bit more context behind that question. My, uh, my uh, CFO was running through some numbers with me and he actually ran an idea behind me for his other clients. And he said, okay, like if I have you fill out this spreadsheet about your pipeline, I can start to do some predictive modeling for you. And he said, can you take a look at this and let me know where you see some issues might come up? And I said, the biggest thing that I see with this, where you're going to find issues is your clients accurately reporting their deal and their their deals in their pipeline. Because you're going to get a lot of people who say, well, this hasn't closed yet, but, you know, they said they're going to get back to me in a month. So can you talk through, like, how do we be honest with ourselves in this process? Good question. And what I'd say is we put way too much emphasis on our process, okay, Mm. as, you know, business owner and someone who's, let's say, got a sales responsibility. Um, Realize that to make a sale, okay, to close that deal requires two parties, Uh, one party to have something to offer and the other party to buy. Okay, you need a buyer. And what we do is we put so much emphasis on our sales process that we neglect to think about the other half of the equation, which is infinitely more important because it's where the entire decision rests. It's on the buyer. And so what I, you know, one of these kinds of things that I think people have a hard time digesting, but, you know, once you think about it, it makes a ton of sense is your sales process is irrelevant. Stop worrying about what you do. The only process that matters is the buyer's buying process. And so what you want to do, if you want to be a little more truthful, is stop talking about how powerful your sales process is and how you've figured everything out and start really reframing all your dialogue and all your internal thinking about where is the buyer in their buying process. And when you start putting it in that context, because the buyer has all the control, they have all the power, um, what you want to do is saying, where's the buyer in their buying process? And a lot of this comes from people having a ton of time like where they invest in sales training and they almost invest zero understanding in actually the psychology behind how people buy. And once you understand the psychology of how people buy, it's far easier to have a very truthful representation and an accurate picture of like, is this going to happen or not? Um, Because you're getting yourself and your head trash and all the things that you think you have so much power and influence over other people that, you know, you just take that away and say, what is really there? And what is really there is a buyer in some stage of their buying process. And once you look at that, 
it's very easy to understand what to do next, where they are, or how close you are to getting that deal signed. I'm glad you you mentioned that. One of the things that I often um, talk to, you know, sales leaders and CEOs who are my clients about regarding like their teams, their sales team is I'll, I'll tell them like, Hey, the next time, like you're buying something like for your company, bring one of your sales reps into those meetings with you. So they understand what it's like to feel like a buyer. And I think one of the best, one of the best ways someone can get trained or, or learn more is to literally be the buyer. And perhaps maybe even a good practice for companies is to like, as, as you scale, give every one of your reps like a $200 budget to buy something, buy some piece of software for themselves to help them and let mm-hmm. them experience what it's like to be a buyer because so much of, your, of a person's improvement in sales can come from really knowing what is, and I don't even mean just like knowing the bad, like spotting the bad things someone's doing, but being able to be like, oh, I really liked how they asked me that question. That's an, I've never thought of talking to someone in that way before, right? You get the good and the bad when you understand what being a buyer is like. And, And so much of where I'm able to come up with like new strategies myself that I recommend on is different scenarios where I'm a buyer and I'm like, I really don't like how I felt in that situation. I wonder why that might be the case. Oh, let me kind of like reverse engineer that and see what was going on there. Or I was really impressed about how this person did that. More people should be doing that. So I I think you're, you're spot on with this idea of like understand and respect the buying process. Yeah. And I think we also have to have a a really clear eyed view of like, what's really going on in our psychology as well. Because a lot of times we, we're really good at rationalizing things. We're really good at convincing ourselves of things and telling us a story as to why I bought that. But the reality is, is um, people don't realize this buying is hundred percent emotional. It starts with emotions. It ends with emotions. And what you need to understand is how do I, and this is why I think a lot of what you do with pitches is because, you know, you, you're very creative in your pitches. And so they're, they, they really ping emotional tones. And that's really essential to a good sales call is, is really understanding the underlying emotions going into it and how I can pivot maybe um, to the emotions I want people to have out as they come at the backside of that sales call. And so um, in, there's a ton of science here. I mean, this isn't like me making this up. I mean, if Nobel Prize winning work from Daniel Kahneman and Thinking Fast and Slow was a book he wrote, but it's, you know, the, the godfather of behavioral economics. Um, if you take a look at the work that Dr. Robert Caldini has done with, uh, you know, on influence and persuasion, um, you know, all these things really key in on these emotional ways in which we buy and that's where I'd say like my Greek family and heritage, which, you know, we're very emotional people mm. really helped me understand how to put emotions into regular conversation and to have people kind of see and visualize things and tell stories is a way to kind of get people through that buying process. But buying is not as logical as we'd like to think. I mean, if you had an economics class in college, you know, more than probably 10 years ago, everything was talked about like Adam Smith's rational man and how, you know, the, the rational man theory of how we make decisions in this very rational way. And, you know, Kahneman and the whole field of behavioral economics put that on its head and said, you know, <laughs> not, not so fast. Now that we know a lot more about brain science and neuroscience, um, there's much more emotion embedded in these rational quote, you know, air quote, rational decisions that um, I think uh, once you understand that, it, it helps you understand the buying process 
once you understand the buying process that people follow, it's far easier to sell and be effective. So understand emotion and that emotion drives buying behavior. Now let me play the role of the devil's advocate here, but Jim, I get how that works if you're selling into like a marketing department, but we sell into like the chief uh, information officer. We sell into like the chief data scientist and they only care about the numbers and the ROI and they're, and they're very rational people. I don't think this makes sense for them. Most of my clients sell to those people and they're all amazed when they come out the other side and they're like, holy cow, Jim, all this stuff you talk about works. <laughs> they're, just because they have a business card title or a role doesn't mean they're no longer human. Um, and humans buy a certain way. And we'd like to think like, oh my gosh, but these people have been educated. So they're more evolved in, in the rational thinking, or they're just more, have a greater inclination. Like let's put a foolish notion to rest right now. It's like, we think like we're evolving so fast um, that, you know, oh my gosh, you know, technology is evolving fast. Okay. The world around us is evolving fast. As humans, we still have like vestigial organs, okay, that haven't gone <laughs> away, okay? Evolution at a human level takes thousands, if not millions of years, okay? Um, so we are still very much governed by the same type of emotional responses, the same type of logic that people who were running from saber-toothed tigers had, um, if that was ever even a thing. <laughs> uh, you know, because I don't know if they existed at the same time. Yeah, the reality is, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a nice visual. Okay, it's a yeah. Flintstones visual. But the reality is, is we haven't evolved that much. So people are still very emotional in their approach. You just have to uncover which emotions matter. So let's say the CFO, they want to get a deal. Okay, we want to key in on they're feeling like, hey, I'm good with numbers. But I want to get a deal. Okay, the purchasing agent wants to get a deal. Um, the CIO who you know might want to. Um, you know, really take a situation and say, how can I get uh, this product in place or get this thing in place that my employees will like and use because, you know, I get a benefit from this. I'm not sure they get a benefit, but it's going to help make my life easier because, you know, this is going to, uh, you know, uh, allow me to go home earlier and spend more time with my daughter at her dance recitals and things like that. All these little things that factor into why people make decisions that they'll never vocalize to you in many ways, but are in the back of their head and just kind of thinking through that and really trying to paint pictures where people are, it satisfies their underlying desires um, is a very powerful way. And once you start thinking that way, and this is one of the, this is why I call it a magic trick. People are like, I don't know. I don't know, Jim, you know, this sounds a little crazy, you know, just give it a shot. Give it a shot because after a little while, you're gonna be like, oh my gosh, this is like ridiculous how effective this is. So like I was spending so much time trying to sell before. And now that I've kind of figured out like, don't sell, facilitate the buying process and just think through that. My gosh, it becomes so much easier. I, I, I always like laugh at people who are like trying to like swim upstream. It's like, why do you want to swim upstream? Like float downstream. It's so much less work. If people are going to give you an hour of time or half an hour of time to, on a sales call, there's some interest there. Okay. Work with the interest, don't work against it. Okay. Mm. Go downstream together with that person, help them buy. And once you stop putting resistance and make it, let's say, a fight that I have to win, I have to convince them to do something they don't want to do and say, let me just help you do something you probably already want to do. Um, the effort is tremendously less. Um, 
It's more fulfilling. It's more rewarding. You end up with a good relationship when it's all said and done. And good relationships end up having lower cost of sales and higher lifetime account value. And that's how you can grow and scale your business without having to hustle so much. Good relationships have lower cost of sale and higher lifetime values. I don't want anyone to overlook that point. Relationship building is such a key of this. And on on the point of just to hammer home the point of emotion, um, the anecdote I always, or the, the, the line I always like to give people when they, they think, Oh, okay. It's, you know, we, we, we sell to doctors, therefore, you know, they're very serious people or whatever. They only want to know, you know, the hardline data is okay. Well, here's how, you know, everyone buys on emotion. Let's say you had the perfect product for the perfect need and they are re- They are just about to hold that. They're just about to put pen to paper. And right before they put pen to paper, you insult their mother. Do you think they're going to say, oh, well, they have the best product and they fit our needs. We're going to buy from them. Or do you think they're going to be like, they're going to tear that contract up and be like, we are not talking to these people ever again. Yeah. It's, it's you know, it, it's one of those things where every situation is, you know, if, if we were to sit out here and say, Jim, give me more examples. I can give you examples, but you're going to be able to, you know, someone's going to sit at home skeptically and listen to this and like be able to tear them, tear them apart. Um, you really need to get into specific situations and specific sales pursuits and try and dissect them. And once you dissect them with people, you say, okay, you understand what was going on here. Or when they said this, is it possible that they were really meaning this? And then people go, oh my gosh, you're right. Mm-hmm. That's what was missing. Or like, try this you know, the next time you speak with this person and then they say, like, I said that and they just opened up. It's like, it's like the sale was just done just because I keyed in on that one thing. And so I really think that the key to uncovering these things is not knowing that like doctors always think like this. I mean, that's as, I mean, I don't want to say it's like, you know, it's, it's as stupid as saying, let's say all Greeks are like this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or worse. Okay. If we want to take it down a worse path, it's like, oh, he's Greek. So he's like this. Yeah. It's like, no, you know, people are individuals. Um, and so the best thing you can do as a salesperson is ask a lot of questions and listen very carefully um, and spend time not knowing about your product really as much. Um, it's spend time crafting excellent questions and know what you want to get out of that question before you ask it so that you're doing this little experiment. You know, this is the engineer back in me. So like, listen, I'm not going to make my question too complicated. I'm going to make it simple. But at the end of that question, I'm going to learn this thing. That will inform my next question. And so if my whole sales call is a series of questions, the person who's buying from me feels like they're in control, okay? Even though I'm kind of steering the discussion a little bit, but very gently, I can do it in a, in a mindset of curiosity, which people often find flattering and interesting because it says, I'm interested in you. And now I learn about their motivations through the process. And then when I do take that time to speak, okay, it's very precise, it's very measured, and it hits home because I'm hitting exactly on the nerve that it needs to hit. So I don't say that much. But what I do say is after a lot of aiming. So it's like taking sales like in a, a, almost like a sniper shot. It's like, I'm going to take a lot of time and a lot of measurements. I want to know what the wind is like. I want to know all these other things because when I do finally decide to, you know, make my statements and try and do something, it's going to be exceptionally precise. 
And people think that's super hard. It's really not. You know, I, I can give you like a list of 10 questions. It's like, ask these 10 questions. And then, you know, you're going to uncover so much. You're not going to, half the work is going to be done for you. And um, that's really the different way to think about this. It also, you know, I think a lot of salespeople think that they should, they're the center of an act. Like if there's this thing called a sales call. And on the sales call, I am the star of the sales call because I'm the salesperson. Um, that's like such foolish thinking. You are really the director of this thing called the sales call. The star is the client. Okay. And they are the one who is the center of attention. The prospect is the center of attention. They are the star of the show. You want to make them shine and them look great. The spotlight is on them. And what you do is you ask questions and you ask those questions and you let them shine. And in those series of questions, they are going to feel great because instead of, this is old Dale Carnegie quote, is be interested instead of interesting. Um, what you're doing when you're the director of, quote, the sales call is I am interested because I'm asking questions and I'm interested in you instead of going out there and saying, this is the Jim V show and I'm going to tell you about my product or my service and how awesome I am. And um, look how interesting I am. Uh, you know, what, if actually, you take you that approach, right I mean, you're going to be grinding uh, way harder and hustling way and harder then, than you need to. Mm-hmm. If you take a different approach and try and make people the center the prospect, the center of attention and ask a lot of questions. And then when it is time to speak, you're going to be very precise with what you say. You're going to find that selling just became like super easy. And I can't believe it. It works. You know? <laughs> okay. It works. Yeah. I was whispering for effect, but uh, probably some sound. No, yeah. You, was, like, you whispered to the effect. that, that, yeah, that I was, I was trying to like away. have something like dramatic. <laughs> so like we just screwed up this totally cool, dramatic, like, you know, <laughs> soliloquy of mine. <laughs> um okay so i totally hear what you're saying um my last question before we hit our wrap up then is persons listening to this and they're saying okay i gotta be a better listener i gotta be interested um you know i i, I gotta do things I, I gotta facilitate the buying process instead of obsessing so much over the sales process that sounds like a lot of work actually can you can you talk back to me here, justify that this is less work than the alternative. Yeah. I mean, it's just thinking about the problem from the other side. You know, it's, it's not really, it's, it's so much less work because, you know, you're not setting up a fight. Okay. Um, if, if I'm trying to sell someone, um, there's resistance. Okay. And, you know, we are wired to have like this fight or flight reflex. So if I'm like trying to push my ideas into your head. Okay. Um, the response I'm going to get from the person on the other side of the table. Okay. My opponent, if that's the way I'm approaching this the person I'm trying to sell, um, you're going to do one of three things because I'm going to raise your cortisol level and you're going to either, you know, want to fight. So you're going to be combative. And now we're going to have some argument and I'm going to really have to like pummel you to convince you to see things my way, which is never good. Okay. You're going to kind of just kind of like flee which is, eh, I'm not interested. I want to be sold to right now. And which is what happens at car dealerships all the time. Or anytime you go into like Best Buy, it's like, eh, I don't want to talk to you. Um, and then, uh, or that you're going to get the freeze reflex, which is what most people get, which is they're just there and they're no longer listening to you. And they're just like, 
of what's going on. I'm confused by this and I'm just going to be nice and nod my head and just go, go with the, the flow. Um, that's not what you want. That's a lot of work. Okay. What you want to do is you want to get this like um, more collegial response. And so there's very few people that don't enjoy, enjoy buying things. I mean, hell, we just went through, you know, um, uh, you know, season where we're buying presents for everyone. And the reality is, is, you know, everyone likes to get that Amazon box on your doorstep. I mean, I don't care if it's something really stupid and simple. It's like, Hey, you know, you got, you know, a new exercise band. I'm so excited to get that. You know, you, you're tracking that package. It's like, to the extent like, that I feel a little sad when I walk into my building and there's all these packages and I know none of them are for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, we like that, that, and that's not a cortisol hit. That is an endorphin rush. So you have an opportunity to work with someone who you've raised their cortisol and they're going to be combative. That's going to be more work. Or you have an opportunity to work with someone who's like leaning into buying something and you're just like, let's make those good feelings happen and let's make them happen faster and easier. And I'm going to be there to facilitate the process. Which one do you think is going to be more work? Um, and you know, that's, it's, you're just looking at the problem differently. People will look at it as more work because it's going to take work for them to change their perspective. But once you change your perspective and you view things differently, you're going to be selling to people who are in a different mindset that is much more conducive to buying what you've got. And that's when it gets easy. So the work to get there, yeah, there's a little bit of work to get there. You got to shift your mindset. But the reality is once the mindset shifted, it's worth the payoff. It's an investment. If someone doesn't want to make the investment, all right, get used to the hustle. <laughs> With that, let's begin our wrap up. Jim, where can our listeners uh, find you and learn more about your work and your show as well? Yeah, well, if you're interested in uh, the Leadership Podcast, you can find us at theleadershippodcast.com. Some great people on that show. Um, if you're interested in, in everything I talk about with the sales, uh, you can find information at Rafti Advisors, R-A-F-T-I Advisors.com. And I'd really encourage everyone to go to this section. I think it's like uh, there's a learn tab and there's a section called library there. Like sign up for the library because I've got just a ton of free stuff. Like you don't, you know, a ton of free stuff that you can download. Um, quick reference guides on sales, sales velocity, um, sales calls, all kinds of other stuff that you can leverage and uh, to you know help grow and scale your business. Who's one person that you want to shout out, Jim? This could be a friend, a mentor, a colleague, a client. Well, I I will. Um, I think we should mention our mutual friend Justin Walker. Um, yeah. I'd like to give a shout out to Justin who. I remember the night I met you, the three of us were standing at the back of, let's say, Bunker Labs, <laughs> listening to a presentation. I think you were leg was, you know, you had a knee surgery or something like that, yep. or some problems, and <laughs> you were on your crutches. And I got to know you that night. And I was immediately impressed. And Justin is just a fantastic guy. I know he's getting his MBA at the University of Chicago, former special operator with the Navy. Um, just a fantastic guy. Um, and I just uh, adore him. And and what I think is interesting is like when you take a look at, let's say something you said, Raj, like I'm a mentor to your, to, to you. Um, I think mentors learn as much from the people they're mentoring. I've learned so much from you. I've learned so much from Justin. Um, you guys have taught me just a bunch, um, changed my mindset and the way I view the world. And I think it's always a two way street. And I just uh, appreciate that, that night. And I remember fondly where I met yeah. you, but you know, we were all kind of chatting in the back. It was, uh, um, you know, so shout out to Justin yeah. and uh, his uh, lovely wife, Natalia, and uh, wish them all the best. 
Yeah. And it's, and it's not just that we met in the back is that Justin was like, Hey, you got, you guys got to meet each other. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And Justin, for everyone listening, Justin's a former guest of this show. You'll have to scroll back a few seasons, but we had a really good episode with him. I think it might've been season 10 perhaps of the show. So two or three years ago at this point, um, Jim, um, let's now do our one, our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners based on today's discussion. I'll go first, then I'll toss it to you. Um, to me, you, you had a lot of really good, um, I, I think as you guys like to say on the uh, leadership podcast, quotable quotes, I think is the phrase you use, or is yeah. that right? Quotable quotes. You had a lot of good quotable quotes. Um, and I, I think um, to me, the thing that stood out the most was this mindset of facilitate the buying process as opposed to trying to sell or sell hard, but your job is to facilitate the buying process. Jim, top one or two lessons or takeaways? Yeah, that'd probably be at the top of the list there, I'd say, you know, um, and uh, um, I'd say be willing to like kind of question and pressure test your assumptions. I think that's an important thing to take away. And then, you know, from a, just a raw business standpoint, um, you know, always be looking at your cost of sales. Um, cost of sales and how you scale your business, because what works today might only be a vehicle to kind of figure things out because don't try and, if your cost of sales is out of whack, it won't scale. And so just because it works today doesn't mean that's a business model that's going to get you into the future. My final question, which is how we end every episode on this show, fill in the blank, Jim. Entrepreneurship is blank. Freedom. Say more. Freedom. I mean, it's it's the freedom to do what you want to do, the way you want to do it. Um, it's exceptionally liberating. Um, but freedom isn't free. You know, freedom has a price. And, um, you know, a lot of people get into entrepreneurship because they're, you know, enticed by that freedom. And it's, you know, very intoxicating. But the reality is, is freedom comes at a price and entrepreneurship comes at a price. It's not easy. It's hard work. Um, and, uh, but it's worth every bit of effort, um, if you really value that freedom, because, um, uh, you know, freedom requires a ton of discipline, um, to maintain. And, uh, it's just, uh, that is a driving force for me as a person. And I think that is why I ended up being an entrepreneur because I just value that so high in, you know, my core values entrepreneurship is freedom. He is Jim Vasilopoulos. Jim, I tell you every time we talk, I walk away with my brain percolating in different ways. And today was no exception. Thank you so much for joining today on this episode of Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Thank you, Raj. It's a pleasure. Always. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guests for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I'll catch you next week. But in the meantime, word up, raise up.